Today's scripture reading is 1 Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15, which can be found on page 348 in your pew Bibles. 1 Chronicles 17. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built a house for why have you not built a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right. Um, Good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. God, you are... You are holy. As we sang over and over and over just a moment ago, you are holy, you are separate, you are glorious, you are independent, you are worthy. You are worth our praises and our songs. You are worth our efforts of gathering together. You are worth everything that we can give to you this morning. You are worth our very lives. You are worthy. God, you sit enthroned. The, the nations rage and you sit enthroned. Like We make plans in this room and you laugh. God, you are God. There is none like you. And yet you love us and you've set your love toward us. God, would we be like blown back by that through this word this morning? Would we see this word to David and your covenant love for him 
um, and, and his family line is actually uh, a declaration of your love for your people in this room. You love us and you'll go through anything to redeem us and rescue us and to bring us into your family, into your household, so that we can sing your praises and be filled with you. We fill this room with praise and honor for you because you actually fill us with life and with meaning and with hope and with all that we've been created for. So God, would you uh, do that in our hearts? Would you raise the, uh, uh, the thankfulness in our hearts and set our eyes on you this morning? We pray in your name, amen. Okay, so <clears throat> we're marching through First and Second Chronicles. And um, let me remind you, Chronicles was written and delivered to a nation whose people had mostly been uh, deported to a distant land, right? They were under God's judgment, deported for 70 years to Babylon, what's known as the Babylonian exile. There they worked as slaves, they had children, they died under this oppressive rule, and their children came back home trying to reestablish Israel in this land, and it was hard work, trying to reestablish right worship and um, an identity back in God's land, and they're rebuilding, and like most things, it's slower than it, like, then they hoped that it would be. It's much harder. They were excited, but things became much more difficult than they had imagined, right? And it's uh, in these many uh, decades after returning that things still aren't as they ought to be. The temple is mostly sort of built, but things aren't fully rebuilt and worship hasn't fully um, been complete in God's temple. And they're becoming complacent and they're drifting from God. That's what's going on. And I wonder how many of them actually were conscious of this happening. Like how many of them in the moment were aware of how their hearts were drifting from what God had called them to do? And I bet for a good number of them, abandoning, rebuilding the temple, not prioritizing the worship of God in community, I wonder if it was a process much like a, a small leak in, uh, in a tire, right? Like you don't notice it at first, but before long you're kind of stuck on the side of the road. See, life got busy. They had kids. They had houses to build and to tend. They had crops that needed planted, businesses that they needed to run. And all of these things were important, but it crowded out the rebuilding of God's temple and what he had called them toward, right? To gather and worship of the living God and to be his people. And this is true for a good number of people in the church, especially in recent years, right? Those people who have actually stepped away from worshiping God in his house, a part of his church recently. Schedules got filled, drifting away due to change of life circumstances, inconvenient schedules, superficial relationships. There may not be a conscious choice to abandon It may not be like a conscious choice. It's not like nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, okay, I'm done. Out of nowhere, out of the blue, I'm gonna walk away from God. It's the result of a lot of little choices and decisions along the way. We prioritize choosing and investing our time in something other than what God has called us toward. And when we prioritize other activities over worship with other believers, we can tend towards complacency and drifting away from God. It kind of just crowds it out, right? And that's a temptation for each one of us in this room. 
it's a temptation for our hearts as well. Even as good things crowd out what God has called us toward, getting busy in kind of the church activities, getting busy with our families and the cares of this world, and we can act as though it just happens to us. But in fact, little choices along the way begin to cause us to abandon regular worship in God's home, uh, regular worship together with God's people and serving within the local body of uh, church. It's a choice that we make and it's wrong and it's actually disobedience to God. And the chronicler here is regularly showing us the importance of Israel gathering in this assembly. And nearly every major event that we'll see through the chronicles in the life of David takes place with the uh, with this like assembly with the people gathered together, first for his coronation, then a few weeks ago with the ark coming into Jerusalem. Here in a little bit, we'll see them gathered as, uh, as he's making plans and preparations for the temple. We'll see it in uh, Solomon's life as he gathers Israel for a temple dedication and the renewal marked as the reassembly of the people. And when Israel gathers together in other books at the temple, it is exactly what you would expect when you read the Old Testament. There's lots of sacrifices, lots of dead animals, lots of blood for the appeasement of sin. But in Chronicles, there's something else highlighted. There's something else actually brought to the forefront. In Chronicles, the primary thing he wants you to see is something new, the sacrifice of praise to the Lord. That's why we're in this book. What the chronicler desires to make emphatic for his readers is he wants to remind us what the most important thing that they can give themselves and what they're lacking is the gathering of the, of the people of God to praise him in his sanctuary. It's why in this series, we're calling this building a house for God's name. We as a church desire and long for the pursuit of the presence of God to be at the center of our church. We actually want it to be the animation reality at the center of our church family. And in our passage today, we're going to see that David actually desires to build a house for God. But in reality, God tells him, no, no, I'm going to build a house for you. So that's what we're going to look at, David's desire to build a house and how God actually builds him a house. And then we're going to take some takeaways for what does that mean for us building a house for the Lord as well. So that's what we're gonna walk through this morning. Let's begin with David's desire to build a house for God. So this is actually a pretty striking passage. David has this large desire, this strong desire to build a house for God's name. He wants to build God this permanent temple. And David, like, it almost has the feel of like, is David feeling a bit guilty here? You know, it's like David grew up in a pretty humble beginnings as a shepherd boy. He lived for like over a decade on the run in caves. And then he looks in his backyard. He's now living in this nice, nice kingly palace. He looks in his backyard and he sees this ratty tabernacle that's been around forever, right? It's been around since the Exodus, centuries early and earlier, and it's looking pretty shoddy and worn. And in Deuteronomy, there's this promised day when eventually the people would gather in one place with a stable center of worship. And perhaps David thought, man, this is the time. Let's see, I've, I've taken the kingship. I've united the kingdom. Everybody's on my team. We've brought the ark back to Jerusalem. I've taken over Jerusalem. This is it. God is doing it. 
the next thing for me is actually to erect a temple of the Lord. This must be what God has next for me. And it seemed pretty obvious to him that that's what he should do next. And this is a pretty good desire and it makes a lot of sense. Even the prophet Nathan tells David to go ahead, whatever's in your heart, just go do it. That sounds like a good plan. That seems right. That seems like what God would want you to do. God's blessing is with you. And it sounds like a great idea, but, it does, but he doesn't go and ask God about it. You see that in the text? He says, yeah, God's on your side. That's exactly what he, he would want you to do. But he doesn't actually go to God and ask him. He simply says, go ahead, but God actually intervenes. God actually steps in and intervenes and gives David um, a no, not to move forward. You see, it's actually the other way around. You aren't building a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. So that's our next point. God promises to build David a house. God says, David, I raise you up from, be, um, from being a shepherd boy of a small clan in Bethlehem, and now you're the ruler over my people. I did this, not you. You desire to build me a house, but I actually did this for you. I actually made you who you are. So your desires to give to me, to, per, to do something for me, when I've given you everything you have to begin with. My desires are not for you to work for me. My desires are and always have been to create a way for my people to commune with me. So God says, I've chosen you and your family in order to make this happen. So here's God's covenant with David. Look at verse 10. If you've closed your Bibles, open them back up to 1 Chronicles 17, we're looking at verse 10, that's page 348 in your hardback Bible. Page 348, he says, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. He's saying, hey, when you die, I'm gonna do this. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be with him a father and uh, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took him, took it from the one that was before you. So God's saying, my desire has always been to commune with my people. It's been that way ever since I created Adam and Eve to be in communion with them. It's been ever since I called Abraham and called him out to bless the nations through his family. It's been that way since I made my covenant at Sinai with Moses that you would be my people and I would be your God. I've been making a way such that we can have communion with one another and I'm still making good on those promises by making this covenant with you in order to fulfill them. And here's how. When you die and go to be with your fathers, I'll raise up for you an offspring to succeed you and I'll establish his kingdom and he'll build me a house and I'll reestablish my kingdom forever through him. I'll accomplish my covenants through your family by building you a dynasty that will never, ever, ever end. It's a pretty lofty covenant. It's a pretty huge commitment. It's a big promise. And then in verse 13, you, say, you see, he says, I'm going to do this through your son. I'll be like a father to him and he will be my son. This is pretty significant language because in the ancient Near East pagan cultures, they believed that their gods ruled over them and they did so through their kings, right? Their kings did more than just administrate leadership. They represented God to the people. 
And they were almost like these like semi-gods. That's why you had so much worship of Pharaoh in Egypt, right? That's why Nebuchadnezzar demanded worship of himself. They saw themselves as these like demigods, these half-gods that represented their god to the people. And the human kings were these sort of sons of God. So son of God was almost like this marker for being a king owned by the God who was in charge of his people. And this language is kind of picked up here and it's actually pretty striking and even beautiful. God is saying that, he, um, that this son would represent the living God and God would be like a father to him. But the question we have to ask in response to this is, who is he referring to here? Who is the son? Who is he actually talking about here? Now, if you feel a little stuck on answering this question, um, the safe bet, if you grew up in church or Sunday school, is always to just say Jesus, right? You just kind of go, uh, psh, I don't know, Jesus. That's always usually the safe bet. That's the one that you always go to because you're right like 90% of the time. But you would be wrong in this instance. This isn't talking about Jesus. If this was referring to Jesus, he wouldn't say the next line. He doesn't, he, he says the next line, he says, look at verse 13. Put your eyes on that. He says, I will not take my steadfast love from him. Of course God the Father is not gonna take his steadfast love away from God the Son. Of course not. He wouldn't have to say that. So he's not talking about Jesus. Here he's saying, or he's speaking of David's son, Solomon. He's talking about Solomon here. You see, God is making a covenant with David that he is going to establish a dynasty with him that will last forever through his line through his family. Think about it. Things did not end well with the last king of Israel, right? Remember King Saul? One of our first sermons going through Chronicles talked about the, 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 the devastation of Saul, that Saul offered a sacrifice in the way that he deemed best and God judged him and his family line was ended. He died and all of his sons were killed, including David's best friend, uh, Jonathan, Hey, by the way, that was like one of the first Sundays we brought our kids in the service and my kids had the little notepads with the place to draw a picture of the sermon. And June's like drawing swords going through people and blood all over the page. It was a pretty graphic sermon and it was depicted that way in my kids' notes that week. God's judgment to their family and ended their family line, right? And David's wondering, things ended pretty badly for Saul when he sinned. What happens to me when I fail? Like, I'm not perfect. What happens when I sin? What happens when my son sins? What happens next? God says, David, I'm going to build a dynasty out of your house. I'm going to make your name great so that when your son does that which is evil, I will not end your family line, but I will judge them. I will judge them. And you see in a parallel passage in 2 Samuel uh, 7, that at this same parallel verse, God actually says, hey, I'll be a son to them, and when they do that which is wrong, what is wrong, I will punish them with the rod of men. So he's not gonna overlook it. He will judge them, he will discipline them, just like a good father would his son. But he says, I will not remove my steadfast love toward him. When he does wrong, I will punish him, but I will not go back on the promise to you that I'm making right here. Then in verse 14, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, forever. And he means it. 
Each king in the line of David then knew that somehow by becoming king in this line, they were particularly sons of God. They were to be representatives of God, meaning they weren't just some ordinary king. They were human kings that were to administer justice and teach God's ways and reflect his character and his integrity and his law and his justice and his concern for people and his compassion. And because they were representing the ultimate king over his people, um, it mattered the way that they conducted themselves according to this covenant. He was going to be like a father to them and they were, to be, they were called to be like sons. This is a condition of the covenant. And this condition is repeated over and over and over in uh, 1 Kings and Chronicles. I wanna show you where it does that. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter two? If you're in your hardback Bibles that we have in the pews, that's page 281. 1 Kings chapter two, page 281. All right, page 281, 1 Kings chapter two. I'm gonna read in verse four. So David tells Solomon, his son, that God said that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. So David's going, hey, remember what God said to me, his covenant that he said to me, saying, if, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now turn over to chapter eight. Turn to the right, chapter eight, verse 25. Chapter eight, verse 25. Here's Solomon now, the son of David, praying. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him. Hey, remember that covenant you gave to David? I'm bringing you in remembrance of that covenant, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. So this means that if David's sons are disobedient, the kingdom cannot be made secure forever. But of course, they were disobedient, right? Of course they were disobedient. Look at what God does then in chapter 11. Flip over to the right again. A couple of pages to the right. This is chapter 11. Look at verse 11. So this is, this is after Solomon marries foreign women and builds temples in worship to idols. God says, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Wait, that goes back on his covenant. And he says, well, for the sake of David, I'm gonna remember my covenant. For the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I won't tear all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. So 
So this is the chastisement. This is the judging. This is the rod. Israel learned over the centuries following David and Solomon that disobedience in the king always brought about national ruin. But the chronicler knew and godly people remembered and knew that he's, remind, and he's reminding his leaders that God has promised that the throne of David would be established forever and God was keeping that promise. So they came to see that the son of David must be coming who would fulfill the conditions of the covenant to sit on David's throne and restore right-ordered worship before the Lord forever. The only way God could fulfill this covenant is if he always sent another king and another king and another king and another king and another king. If you take this covenant literally, but there's another option that he would establish a king that would just last and reign forever. So only two ways you could take this covenant literally. And the succession of imperfect kings could never fulfill this promise. And if God were true to his word, if he stuck to his promise to David, he would have to raise up a righteous and obedient son of God to take this throne. So this is about the 10th century BC, but we already see about 200 years later in the time of Isaiah, in the words that every one of us in this room knows because we read it every Christmas, Isaiah is looking forward to the time when this promised king would sit on David's throne and would rule on the throne of his father, David, and he virtually identifies this coming king as God himself. This is in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. And he says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. He will be a king. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Man, it's almost like, feels like it's overstating it. Everlasting Father. So he's a son and yet he's an everlasting father. He's the Prince of Peace. He'll bring about worldwide peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from his time forth and forevermore. So the surety of this covenant with David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as king to sit on the throne. He must, he has to. This covenant with David is conditional, but it's also certain. And because it's certain, that his throne will be forever, you can be sure that God himself has to come and meet the conditions of the covenant, right? So when you come to the New Testament, the phrase son of God is repeated all over the place. It's all over the place and in many different ways referring to Jesus. You have Jesus dying on the cross and people looking at him going, surely this was the son of God. You have uh, Jesus asking Peter, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter responds to him. He says, you are the Messiah, which is to say the Christ, the promised king of David. He says, you're the promised king that was promised to us. You are the son of the living God. You are the promised king, the son of David, the true son of the real living God. However, I think the most striking statement is actually said in Matthew at the end of Matthew, Matthew 3 and at the beginning of chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist and he comes up out of the water and we're told at the end of chapter 3 that the Spirit of God descends on him. 
It descends on him like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this language here is taken from Psalm 2 and I wish we had time to unpack that and to go back to Psalm 2 and look through this, um, but I'll, I'll reference it here in a little bit. But this is pointing to the son of David, uh, the promised son of God. Then immediately, He's baptized and led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. And the tempter, Satan, actually comes to him and tempts him in the midst of um, his fasting. And he says, hey, if you are really the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus responds to him in the words of Deuteronomy 8, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan, the devil comes to him again and says, if you really are the son of God, and Jesus responds twice in language from Deuteronomy 6 and 8 saying, look at me, look at me. I'm the ultimate son where others failed. I'm the ultimate son where the nation of Israel has failed, where their kings have fallen short. I'm the true king of Israel that has come to lead my people perfectly back to communion with God himself. I too learned that humans do not live merely on physical food, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus comes as the true son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he does not fail. He does not falter. He does not fail where past kings have failed. He is the perfectly obedient son of God. And David wanted to build a house for God, but God wanted to build a house for David. He wanted to build a house for God, uh, for David, because he actually desires much more for us, much more than we could ever think to ask or imagine he wanted to build a house for David because God sovereignly sustains his line in order to bring redemption and forgiveness of sins that humanity needed. So he came and lived a perfect life and died a shameful death to bring about redemption. He is the son of God that we might be welcomed into his household and welcomed into communion with him and to praise his name. That's the point of this. That's the covenant. Now, with the time we have left, what I would love to do is unpack a couple takeaways for us. I actually have four takeaways for us as we move forward as a church, as we're considering what it looks like to build the house of God together. What are a couple takeaways we can have here? And I actually wanna orient them from the fact that God tells David no. Why did God tell David no in this passage? I think the first reason he said no is because God alone writes redemptive history. God alone calls the shots. God alone writes redemptive history. Look at our passage today. Look at verse five. First Chronicles 17, verse five. For I have not lived in a house since the day I was brought up from Israel to this day but I've gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all Israel. And then he goes, uh, did I speak a word with any of my judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's like God is saying, hey, if I wanted a house, I would just ask for one. Hey, if I wanted a house, if that was my will, I would have made it known. 
I would have said something about it. I have not said anything about this. You're getting out in front of me. Not yet. This is not my will. Now, don't we all want to do something great for God? Like I think about, like I put myself in David's shoes. I want to do something great for the living God. I think many of us in this room want to trumpet God to our city. We want to do something great for God in our city. We want the world to take notice of the God that we worship. We want to do something for God. And it is right, and it is a pure, good, godly desire. And I don't want to diminish that one bit. Just the timing was not of God here. Sometimes good intentions and even pure ones are not part of the timing of God in the moment. And God does as he pleases. He is sovereign. It's his agenda that actually sets the agenda of the redemption, redemption promise. Like, could Abraham, could Abraham have imagined what God would do through him? Right? Could, you, could he have ever imagined? Think of all the stories of him being old and wanting a child and what God would do through his line. He never could have imagined. Abraham didn't approach God and go, hey, that Tower of Babel thing, crazy, right? Hey, I, maybe you could use me and make the whole, like bless all the nations through me. He never approached God. God came to him. God initiated redemption to him. Could Moses have imagined all that God would have done through him and through the people of Israel as they escaped to Egypt and marched through the desert, not in his wildest imaginations. But if we were writing the story, I mean, you have Moses in the family of Pharaoh. That seems like a pretty good place to start having an uprising. In fact, Moses thought so. He took the life of an Egyptian trying to free a Hebrew from him, right? And it failed miserably. It failed. It fell on his face. It wasn't until Moses escaped Egypt, went off to a distant land, was a nobody, was old, did God call him and enlist him to his purposes, right? What about Saul? Saul thought he knew best. He thought the way to approach this situation and God judged him and he was removed as a king. What about Samuel? He was looking for somebody tall and strong and God put his finger on a shepherd boy. Okay, so... Let's be a church that is humble with the ways of God. Let's be the kind of church that is humble and open to God's redirecting. What I see here in David and in Nathan are two men who are humble of heart enough to be corrected and even redirected, right? Like they, they received, yeah, they got a little over their skis. They got moving forward. They got marching forward before asking God what his will was, but God was faithful and true to them and redirected them. And they were humble enough to respond faithfully to that, right? Let's be that kind of church. And we're going to get a lot of things wrong as a church, right? We're going to get like, we're going to get out ahead of God at times, but let's be grounded in his word, asking him for wisdom and having humble hearts to receive redirecting when it comes. I think the second reason God says no is we cannot make God great. God makes us great. One of the reasons why God says no to David is David can't make God great. God makes him great. Look at verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. So I've taken you from nowhere and made you a king over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
The trouble is that David is almost beginning to sound here a little bit like he's trying to do a favor for God. Like, God, I know I acknowledge the fact that you've given me a lot of great stuff, but man, now that I'm king, now that I'm in charge, now I'm in this position, let me do something for you. Let me do something powerful for you. God reminds David then of the utter asymmetry of their relationship. And this is essential for us if we're going to be the kind of church that rightly orients our worship to God. God's needlessness. God's radically apart from the gods of the, like God is radically apart from any way that we can like add something from him. He is radically apart from the gods of the nations who depend on temple building kings and their offerings of food and sacrifice. God is great. He is great. And he is, um, he is great in and of himself and does not depend on us or need us for anything, any kind of thing. This was called the doctrine of aseity. It's a word that has kind of largely fallen out in English, but it is a word that the Puritans used often to talk about the holiness and set-apartness of God, God's aseity. He is so much from himself that he's independent. We cannot add to him and we cannot take away from him. When we praise him, we don't make him great. We only ascribe greatness that he already has. God is the God of his deity. He is great because he is God. God is not up in heaven each week between our gatherings going, when is Sunday gonna get here? Like I, I, need, I, need, I need some infilling or something. I, I need like my ego stroked in some way. Like I'm bored, I'm, like I need, I need some encouragement. God is not up in heaven yearning in that way. He is not lacking in any way. He doesn't need encouragement from us. He doesn't need our songs. He isn't waiting around each Sunday for us to stroke his ego in those ways to make him feel better about himself. The angels in heaven are tending to his worship day and night and continually falling before him day and night crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he needs us. No, he doesn't need our praises and worship as if he's missing something or lacking something. His house was never meant to be a place where we go through these rituals or these duties to like appease or to give him something that he's lacking. Gathering and praising his name is what we do as a people because we love him, because we acknowledge that he loves us because he has pursued us and called us by our name and brought us into his family. It is something we do because we are like brothers with Christ and he is our father. It's a relationship. It's like saying that we give to our spouses in order to keep being married to them. No, no, no. I date my wife and have conversations with my wife because I love her. I love her, which takes me to my next reason. Reason three. God desires relationship and the praise of his people. So <clears throat> after this covenant with David, what we'll see for the rest of 1 Chronicles is that David begins to understand that what is to fill God's house was not like the sacrifices or the incense or the smoke from the sacrifices. This is not God's ultimate goal in filling his house. 
right? Those weren't the ends. Those were actually pointers to another reality. The point of the temple was simply to be a meeting place between God and his people. God's house was supposed to be filled with offerings of ourself and of prayer and praises to God. His house is to be a place of praise and worship and infilling of what God is owed. God is not enthroned by how flashy 3921 Baltimore becomes or by all the things that we can do, how big of a splash we can make for God in our city or, or what we can do for him. God loves the world and is after creating for himself a people enthroned on their praise. He wants to be enthroned on our praise and that's the point to enter into that relationship. So when we gather as a New Testament covenant community, as Christians on this side of Jesus, we are gathering each and every week, prioritizing, coming together, not because this place is like somehow holy or special in some sense, but we come and gather in this place because each one of us are indwelt with the living God himself through the spirit. God promises that when, he, when you put your faith in Jesus, that he actually infills you with his very spirit. So we gather like tiny temples. Each one of us in this room as small temples coming together. And when we gather together, we actually raise an instance of prayer and of praise that like, like brings a smile to God's face. Not that he, like, not that we're adding something, but because he loves relationship with us. He loves communion with us. And the praise and the sacrifice we offer are lives dedicated to him. Rather than offering bulls and goats to take away blood, we don't have to do that anymore because of Jesus's sacrifice. Instead, we offer our very lives. Like what Romans 12 talks about, where we actually offer uh, ourselves as living sacrifices to his name, for his name, for his glory. Reason number four, God desires relationship with you. That's why he sent Jesus as the son of God. And this is where we're gonna end. This is where we'll uh, move toward communion. God said no to David because he was working a much larger plan. He said no to David because his plans were much greater. He loves you and desires you that you would believe in him for your sin and have relationship with him. This is how John ends his gospel. If you look at John 20, 30. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe even like turn there right now or mark this in your notes. This would be something worth going back and reading again. John 20 verse 30. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. May he did so many more things to confirm who he was. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the son of David, the son of God. The son of God is the synonymous term almost with the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one. And that believing this, you may have life in his name. The claim in other words is that Jesus is this ultimate descendant of King David. He's the one who comes and actually lives the life that you should have been living but can't because of the inset of sin, both handed to us and also chosen willfully. 
we sin against God, but Jesus came and lived that life perfectly before the Father. His life was a perfect living sacrifice before God. And then he died a death by which he actually took your sin upon himself and died for our sins. And if you put your faith in him as the Messiah, as the son of God, then he actually gives you his earned righteousness so that you, when God looks down at you, he does not see your sin. He does not see your um, rebellion. He actually sees something pleasing to his eyes. He actually sees his son righteousness covering you, that you are redeemed, that you are purchased, that you are his and he's, Jesus is the one who is already foreseen in Psalm 2, ultimately who will crush all of his enemies under his feet. He's the ultimate Davidic son. He's the one who will crush the last enemy who is death. And that's where we, our hope is. And that's why we celebrate communion at the end of our service, that Jesus has come to rescue us from sin, to rescue us from death itself, and actually ushers us back into relationship with God by which we gather and worship his name, that he is worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of our very lives because he has come um, as the final king. He has come to actually rescue us from our sin. Hey, if that's your hope this morning, that's why we celebrate communion each and every week because it is our central claim. It is our, uh, our primary hope that Jesus is who makes us right with God. And we invite you to come and celebrate communion. The way we celebrate communion is by actually declaring that confession together. By ripping the bread, we're saying, Jesus, you'd had to die for my sin. I deserve death, but you died. And we dip it in the cup as to say, only the blood of Jesus can cover my sins. And we dip it in the cup and we eat saying, my hope is in your uh, broken body and your shed blood for me so that I actually can worship you and be in communion with you forever. If that's your claim, if that's your hope, if you place your faith in Jesus, we invite you to come and take communion. If you're serving communion, you can go ahead and come on up. And um, hey, if that is not your hope, if that is not your desire, then we invite you to stay in your seat because the actual act of taking communion is making a statement. It is actually declaring a truth. And if that's not in line with what's in your heart, then we, we, we don't invite, like, there's no reason to pretend. There's no reason to perform. We actually take communion in a way that's a bit chaotic on purpose. Um, and, and it would be totally fine for you to just stay in your seat. Let me also say something else here. Hey, communion for us is not a sprint. We actually also do it this way as to create space for you to, before coming and taking communion, to pray to God, to ask him, is there any known sin that I have in my life that would keep me from celebrating this meal while I'm holding on to this? Take a moment and ask God to reveal to you places where you have besetting sin that you would ask for God's forgiveness in, and then come and celebrate communion together with us. Um, I'm gonna pray for us and then uh, those of us who are taking communion can come. So Father God, we honor you and we worship you. You are our only hope. Without you, we are, uh, we're waiting for a, like a hopeless someone else to come. Like forever, perpetually, hoping that maybe the next time I can, 
I can do better or that somebody else can do better for me. But we don't have to live in that rat race anymore because you have come as the decisive answer to our sin and our brokenness and our self-deception. You have come to rescue us from our very selves and our sin to bring us into relationship with God. So God, I pray that um, as we take communion and as we sing the songs after this, that you would make our voices louder, that you would bring our hearts um, to sing these songs louder out of praise and honor and worship that you are worthy, you are glorious, you are, um, you are worth our very lives. And we praise you for actually giving your life so that we could have relationship with you in your name, amen.